you have to act the way you want to be remembered. Now, there's a level of objectivity that you can influence, but you can't control there. At each of those points where we have failed, there was a lapse in judgment where it was like, stop looking at the first order effect. What's the second? What's the third? What's the fourth? And what's the overall effect we're after here? The thing that holds it together, apart from that understanding and the fact that with a couple of choices, we could probably tear each other's lives apart if we really wanted, we violently protect each other's reputations. Like we are so committed to that protection. And I think it's that protection that forges that relationship. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. My guests today are David Neal and Jonathan Clark, who both served in the Australian Army as infantry officers, leaving the Army at the rank of captain. David served for 11 years and Jonathan for 15, who both completed operational service in Afghanistan. On completion of their full-time service, David and Jonathan found themselves in project management consulting before they joined together in a business as co-founders of the 8th Mile Consulting. Their mantra is good people helping good people. As you will hear, this is something they live every day. What I loved about the conversation was the candour in which they shared their stories from the front line on operations in Afghanistan and their careers in the Army. And their energy around how we can learn when we get it wrong and the fact that we could have continued to talk about life, leadership and learning for many, many more hours. Well, David, Neil and Jonathan Clark, welcome to Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time available. Thanks, mate. The pleasure is all there, has, mate. It's been a long time coming. So, yeah, good to have this chat. Let's dive right in. I, I, I guess you're a partnership in business and you met early in your career, but what led you both to join the Army? Uh, look, when I, was, uh, when I was at school, the traditional pathway of going to uni and doing it just didn't appeal to me hyper- hyperactive kid with probably a short attention span for the classroom environment. So I was like, I need to find something else. I originally tried to join as an officer, but they said you were too young, no life experience. And let's be honest, you're lazy uh, in your academics. So go and get some life experience or join as a soldier and see how you go. So join the army as a soldier, was posted to an infantry battalion after four years there, uh, put in the, the request to turn to over to become an officer and was recommended. When I started day one at Adfer, I met, I met this guy. And then that's where the that's where I suppose the joint journey starts. Um, and I'll say it right out here and be completely honest and frank about it. We hated each other mm-hmm. when we first met. We worked out a, an interesting story about where our, I suppose the friendship started, but it also escalated to a point where we're about to come to, to fisty cups in a bar one night after a particularly heated period of time. Um, we could probably tell that story a little bit later on if it comes relevant. <laughs> uh, but yeah, then we went through our, Adver journey and to the Royal Military College, both picked infantry as our core preference, regimental officers, basic course together, and then sort of went our separate ways in battalion life. He was posted to the Northern Territory, I was posted to Queensland, and then sort of just bumped our own best mates the whole time with uh, with a whole with another 
set of guys. Um, they're all in the consulting space as well, which is which is interesting. Everyone's out. And then we finished up together at a, at a place called Headquarters of First Division, both as senior battle captains in, in a joint operations room running sort of large-scale operations. And, you know, you know the big the big exercises of the years, you know, 37,000 people and we were doing that and reached a point and were tapped on the shoulder by the same doctor and said, hey, boys, you are, you can't be infantry officers anymore because of your back and your knees and all that sort of thing. So, you know, we sort of knew what our trajectory was going to be and started looking in sort of separate lanes, opportunities and gaps within a within a corporate context to find other employment. Yeah. Ultimately, as it turned out, we, you know, we were both trying to find a mechanism to jump out. And if in the best case scenario, we were trying to look for something we could work together on, because if not, why not? South African saying it always comes true in the end. And so we, we managed to land on an opportunity to support the non-for-profit sector, rolling out large scale ERP projects, you know, $10 million plus software projects with the, which are enterprise level in the sense that they're multiple businesses and stuff like that. So Jono kind of put his hand up and said he'd run the back of house infrastructural side, you know, and we learned on the fly basically. And I would be in the software design space because I lost the Chong off, um, which was great. Um, So quite literally the Chong off for who would get what job. And so, you know, we always go rock. And it never it never works for me, but I just keep sticking with it, thinking it'll change the next time, but it doesn't. Anyway, as it turns out, we rolled out that project for a while. We were given the opportunity to extend our contracts and we had been watching, you know, the culture of that particular industry and some of its sub-industries. And we had been, you know, for, for lack of a better word, whinging about the the state of some of the accepted norms in those cultures and in those you know at the board level the executive level middle level managers and throughout the rest of the organization and we kind of said well look we'll get to the point where we'll either do something about it or we won't and it's just time to shut up and stop whinging and get the job done and so then we launched the eighth month and i think back to that original question martin in there which i think it was important to go down the journey is i think the initial the initial purpose for for joining the military or the the army in, in this context was was around service. I mean, when I when I first joined, um, or right before I first joined, I was I was in the gym on a rowing machine, and I looked up on one of the one of the screens, and I saw what looked like a movie, but it was actually two planes just plummeted into into the buildings over in over in the US, and I was like, well, that's it. Like it it's on. It's time. March the next year, I was. I was running around in cams as a as a young soldier, and I think, especially within within our current context in the company, service has always been one of our priority values. Whether I knew the word or its definition back then, probably not, but service is definitely one of those key values that we we hold true. And I think that's what's what got us into the military, and also is what has put us into the not for profit sector, and then again, what has enabled us to launch on. The, the eighth mile consulting is that backbone of service. It's funny you should mention um, 9-11 and mm. that experience. I was actually serving as the uh, fleet operations officer in Sydney and went to work that night at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I remember walking in the gate, um, not knowing what I was going to have to deal with and saying, you know what, actually this is what service is about. Never knew that I was going to have to do that, having joined in a very peaceful time in the world. But that was the moment when you go, actually, this is what I need to do, um, and this is about stepping up to service. Who were your leadership heroes growing up, either you know before the service or maybe early in your service careers? 
Well, I was very fortunate to have a best mate called Chris Appleton, who I've been friends with. This is Chris Appleton Jr. for most of the military people, particularly the armies, their ears will perk at the name Chris Appleton. Well, his dad was Chris Appleton Sr. And as I was approaching the end of my time in year 11 and 12, Chris Appleton Sr. became the um, commandant for Duntroon and the head of the infantry corps. And having watched his um, I guess his presence, you know, what we'd later call command presence and the way he the way he held himself and, and, the, and the way he presented himself in different forums was definitely something to look up to. And then for, for myself, it was cross-referenced against particularly my parents, but at a special level, at a, you know, at a male to male level, my dad, who, you know, had kind of worked himself out of very, very poor um, situations and circumstances, you know, and had come out on top and had kind of dragged the family along with his success out of very tough times. So having those two role models to kind of cross-reference against, I definitely say there's there's a hybrid of something in the middle. Very, very similar story on my behalf. Both my mother and father were ex-Air Force. Um, dad was an Avtech, mum was a mum was a clerk, and I've always my dad's always very, very been very strong on those on those values, and he's always been a good role model around around that space, especially commitment to family and service. One of my best mates growing up, his dad was an ex-Vietnam veteran, served in the 1st Battalion over in Vietnam. And just the way that he carried himself, he ended up being one of the, I don't know if you call the chief warden at one of the, not warden, um, the chief marshal at a, at a fire. Uh, it was a fiery on the Gold Coast as well. And just the way he held himself and carried himself, you know, you just go, well, that. Whatever that is, whatever that gravitas is, whatever the you know what we would later call the command presence, you know where they just they hold it. Whatever that is, I want to be someone with that kind of influence that can actually make a difference. And my dad was the same, Bob was the same, and you know I think those influences really really carried through. I wouldn't say from a from a military perspective, having knowledge of you know your Sun Tzu's or anything like that, I had absolutely no idea about those those types of people back then. And I don't know whether I would have listened or paid attention to any of that study back then either. So for me, it was that tangible front of house, like right there, and then those those role models. So it sounds like it's those practical examples and the um, demonstrated example you see in front of you that becomes that kind of model that you're looking for to for your own development, and it's an osmosis process at the end of the day. You, you both talked about command presence. What is that? think the extension of it is gravitas which you know you'll know when you've hit it because you'll there'll be a person who enters the room and the chitter chatter just starts to dumb down and they go they know that by association of that person being in the room something is about to happen of worth and of value Um, and having that influence is is a very powerful thing if you want to create positive change if if you don't then it's not it's not for you and it's not it's not worth the investment but if you genuinely want to scale your influence it's it is that presence when you enter the room and 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 holding the room and and having people's genuine and authentic attention in some workplaces and cultures though people going quiet in the room could also be from a leader who's actually just leveraging their own power oh absolutely it's um as I said, you'll, you'll know it in your gut, whether it's it's based on fear or it's based on incentivization. You're going to know whether it's a leader who, you know, let's be honest, you know, the distinction between leadership and management is important in this context as well. And we, we subscribe to the idea of Cotter's 87 definition of, 
you know, leaders coordinate change and managers coordinate complexity. Well, there's a couple of ways you can be a manager and still achieve the same effect and some do better than others. Leadership, on the other hand, is about influence. If you want to make change and then for that change to become the new norm, well, damn, there's only a couple of ways that actually work well experiment after experiment, you know, and so I think it's something along those lines. Yeah, that that fear-based leadership can be very, very short-lived and or maybe even if it is enduring, they've always got to watch their back. Because someone, someone's always coming. They might, people might go quiet in the room, but it's giving them time to think how they're going to undermine and usurp that leader if they're, if they're fear-based, uh, which is really, really important to note. Yeah. Look, we know it doesn't go well all the time. What were those, some of those moments in your military service where you know what, actually, I stuffed up as a leader here, I need to actually do better? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one story where I completely messed it up. I mean, categorically, and it, and it probably tore me apart at a, at a values level because I always considered myself someone who cared about their soldiers, like always, and, and most people probably agree. But in this in this point, I completely messed it up. I had a, had a young corporal, really proficient soldier. We returned from a – so this was exercise. I wasn't on operations at this stage, but we were gearing up. We were you know, a month or so away from deploying to Afghanistan. We'd just come back from a field exercise, and – I was a platoon commander of a reconnaissance platoon. If you know anything about an infantry battalion, though, these guys are fit, smart, strong. Like they are, you know, the weapons when it comes to being being humans, they're a pinnacle of you know, physical performance as well as you know their, their professional in, acumen. Yeah, professional acumen and intellect. Like they're they're amazing soldiers. And we just come back from a field exercise, and I must have just lost, fatigued, you know, rationalised it however you want. Lost my head for a second. We were missing a, an item of equipment that was a controlled piece of equipment, which meant if you can't find it, you pretty much got to go back to the training area and and search for it. Um, it gets notified through the chain of command all the way up to you know our allied forces that this piece of you know equipment's missing. And so we did our checks and couldn't find it. And I was really starting to get because all the all the rest of the battalion had gone home except for my my call sign. You know, they're all going home enjoying their time with their families right before we deployed to Afghanistan. So when they when they did more of a detailed search, they ended up finding it in my young corporal's pack. You know, as their leader, they found this piece of equipment in his pack and I brought him in. What started as calm, you know, controlled performance counselling, I suppose, I, I lost my head because, you know, we wore professionalism as our as our suit of armour and this app in my head, I just like, this has ripped our armour apart. But I think what happened is I took it personally, which is my mistake. I didn't leave my ego at the door. And so what started as control counselling ended up in me screaming like at this guy. And not just, you know, in the army, you're used to getting yelled at, you know, your eyes glaze over and you just accept it, it's fine. No, I hit this guy at a values level with my words. I tore apart his professionalism. I you know, tore about his commitment to his soldiers, like, Every piece, and I just pulled it apart. Didn't realise the this, this sort of damage I'd, I'd done. And then when I, I let him out of the office, I turned around and the louvers and my windows were open so the platoon downstairs could hear it. And so right then I was like, oh, that's that's bad form. Um, I should probably apologise uh, to the platoon and to him. I didn't. We deployed to Afghanistan about a month later and he, um, we're, out, uh, we're doing big clearance and he'd identified an enemy position had called it in, 
unfortunately, he wasn't aware of the the overall situation that was on the ground. So I'd come across the radio, I'd cut him off, and I'd break, break, and start calling a different thing. What I hadn't realised is that my counselling session I'd given him had ripped him apart at a, at a confidence level, and then coming down on top of him over the radio had also shot him down. So he's probably thinking, you know, JC doesn't trust me. He thinks I'm a bad soldier, a bad leader, a bad commander, and he, he spiralled. Finished the trip. We came back, and a lot of officers and leaders left the unit at the end of that year. I was I was promoted, stayed on as a, as a company second in command, and, you know, we sort of went Went about it. was about eight eight years later, I think it was. Um, I changed my name on Facebook back to like my actual name, and he found me. and He's like, "If I ever see you out in and around, I'm going to punch you in the face." And I was like, "That's interesting. I've I've been punched before, so you know, I know what that feels like. I, I really like it, but you know, I can handle it." Um, and I was like, "Hold on, wait, wait. Before I react, before I go down the path of mate, many have tried. Like you know, we're notoriously hard to kill." Let me have a think about this. I actually grabbed Dave and I was like, mate, this is, I don't know where this is coming from, but let me tell you the background and let's see if we can figure it out. And what I ended up doing is replying to him going, mate, I understand, I understand completely how you feel. And my actions at that time were, were probably inappropriate, but here's some things you missed out in your critique about my leadership. And I went through and I just listed it. I was like, I didn't deal with conflict appropriately. I didn't understand myself. You know, I went all the way through it. I ended up catching up with him. A couple of weeks later, and when I saw him, I could see he was, just, like, he was defensive. He was sitting back, and I'm like, oh, this guy's going to punch me in the face. So I was like, you know what? I want him to remember how close we were before that before that incident happened. So as I got closer, I just reached out and just gave him a big hug. I was like, mate, really good to see you. Uh, it's been a long time. So yeah, we ended up catching on. What I ended up finding out was that at the time that I gave him that, that sort of dressing down, his life was burning down around him, but he was so professional that he didn't want to tell me about it. Like his life was literally in tatters. Uh, and so when he went to Afghanistan, he was dealing with all that as well, but didn't think he could talk to me about it at that stage. So that's another thing that like punched me square in the guts. I was like, one of my soldiers wasn't comfortable enough to talk to me about all of that going on. Failure of leadership. Never underestimate the impact we can have on another human. And right then, case in point, your actions as leaders, because you have access to information that other people don't have, your impact is it's only a force multiplier. Your impact on people scaled up here where other people who don't have access to that information don't have that influence. And yeah. I use more negatively. And it, it opens up one of the elephants in the room when it comes to discussions about leadership is about delivery versus intent. Mm. You might have the best intent in the world and people go, well, I was trying to do the right thing. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't invest time to actually figure out the mechanism or the sequencing or the steps to actually get this message in a way that had the best chance of its success. And so many people go, no, 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 look, you know, I try to do the right thing. And they kind of throw their toys out of the cot. Well, th- this le- this is a lesson we use using Jono's story to go delivery is as important and at times even more important than the intent of the message. How you deliver one message is how you'll be measured on all messages in some regards. So, yeah, we it's a very, it's an important and timely story. So much like that lesson is not leadership communications and interaction connection is not a checklist. Mm. You know, it's, it's actually got to come from the heart. Um, it's got to have that emotional intelligence, which I know is what you guys talk about. Well, and also, you know, be a be a human. Yeah. Like at that stage, I think I'd withdrawn back into my position, you know, as a as a platoon commander, rather than the fact that I was a I was still a human. You know, this guy and I we were soldiers in the same battalion before I crossed over. 
and we're both at the at the same unit. He medically discharged for a, a numerous amount of reasons, and you know, one of those things he was trying to square with in the future was how to remediate that incident. Like that, when I talk about having an impact on a person psychologically, I I damage this person. So it's like, well, I gotta, you know, you got to fix that and fix the relationship. Yes, that incident, I cannot go back. I can't fix it, but I can change the way we do things moving forward and hopefully communicate that lesson to other people so they don't do it. You know, we talk about Viktor Frankl and the, the gap between stimulus and response, and in that gap is your, is your power of choice, and in that choice is your freedom. It's like, why didn't I maximise the time between the stimulus and the response and respond appropriately? I can't fix that. So how do leaders get better at being able to make that pause to actually make better choices, do you think? I think there's there's a really important piece here about objectivity, okay? It's this, um, there's a couple of sub-levels to it, but it's like, you know, there's a famous quote that says, don't worry about your reputation, worry about your character. Your reputation is what people think of you. Your character is who you are. It's along those lines. Well, you have to act the way you want to be remembered. Now, there's a level of objectivity that you you can influence, but you can't control there. And so at a personal level, you know, John has just told his story. I've got the same number of stories of equal damage and of, you know, equal scope. But at each of those points where we have failed, there was a there was a lapse in judgment where it was like, stop looking at the first order effect. What's the second? What's the third? What's the fourth? And what's the overall effect we're after here? If the overall effect you're after is a highly performing team, you know, this is in Jono's context, a highly performing team of confident leaders that look up to their leadership with a level of trust. Well, rewind the play now. What do I need to do now to instill that effect later on? But a lot of the time to use that Viktor Frankl quote, we just go for it. We just go for we fly off the tongue, we, we bomb the filters out, and then we go, oh, you know, I'll, I'll fix it later, and inevitably later never comes, and then the relationship just whirls down and gets more and more complex and more difficult to fix. So it really does link to that act the way you want to be remembered. You know, I, I remember in times, in my, particularly in my first, you know, gunfights and contacts and stuff like that, I was only 22 years old managing, you know, up to 45 troops on a battlefield, not really knowing what I'm doing, just winging it, but looking really confident. It's like, you know, we're all winging it, but we've got some people have got a better poker face. Well, we've got a pretty good poker face, so lean into that. But it was only after time that I realised that if I dropped the poker face during times of intensity or crisis, the effect that, the exponential effect that had on the team Whereas if I acted, well, what's the effect? I want to be known as a cool, calm, collected leader that's the rock in crisis and, you know, the lighthouse in the storm. Like, that's the imagery. Well, damn, you've got to do it when it's happening. You know, you can't run from that because if you get, if you lapse, that's the that one in ten times that you lapse and then cross-reference against the nine times you did it well, irrelevant. The one time is what you'll get remembered for. And, and I think that is a fear response as a leader. You know, you're talking about being measured against your value system. Well, if you want to be known as the leader that was the cool, calm, collected one, well, damn, you've got to be cool, calm and collected. You can't argue your way out of it. And I think that's scary enough for some leaders to do the right thing when the time comes um, and to buy yourself time to go, I'm just going to, I'm not going to send that email. 
that I've spent 10 hours drafting in a fit of cortisol rage. I'm not going to press send on that. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and I'm going to come back and I'm going to think about it and then I'll, I'll either amend it or send it. That email send is a reputation breaker and an influence breaker. And I think, Martin, you probably agree there's, there's an experience point in there as well that you understand it doesn't need to be done right now. Like, you know, it's like in, the, in that instance, how do I have a bit more experience, knowledge, understanding, all the stuff that we learn over time. It's like, you know what, I actually don't need to correct that behavior right now. I can take 10 minutes, take a breath, do some box breathing, you know, think about the purpose, what's the end state. I want to have guys confident in their ability to command fights over in Afghanistan. Look, I want a team of highly professional people that can do that. How is this action going to impact that? Is it worth 10 minutes? So you you both had operation service in Afghanistan as infantry on the ground. What were the what was that like and what were the things that actually made sure that you got your team through that period of time in harm's way? Oh, I, I guess I can talk about talk about my own experience. I look for me it was an absolute roller coaster. I joined with MTF2, so it was a little bit like the the Wild West at, at that time. The biggest surge of infantry presence for the Australians of all the tours um, were at least up until that point and, and most likely from that point. And it, 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 there was a lot of confusion at the, some of the strategic level about what we were allowed, what was the effect we were trying to achieve and all those sorts of things. Now, I was 22. <laughs> um, I was winging it, as I said before. I was doing the best I could with what I had. Pretty smart, pretty rat cunning at the best times, good street smarts, that sort of thing. That's probably the strength for, for me. So I was like, oh, I'll lean more into that. But yeah, there, there was um, a couple of times where I absolutely dropped the ball and I, I made a very, very special point at the time to go, well, what can I learn from this and how can I move forward? One of the most, I guess, one of the, the aha moment where I realised I wasn't the leader I, I thought I was or all the bravado and all the ego and pride wasn't maybe what it was cocked up to be was in our first contact where I'd had a section commander who I knew from the onset, the moment I saw him in the battalions, I, I knew I was like, he's not up to speed. It, you know, he's, he's slow. He, you know, he's, he's not, he's not representing his team. All these things like these were, these were hard truths and I had to come to terms with it. But I, I was in that mindset of professionalism. Well, what does a leader do? He, you know, he, he fixes and he, and he doesn't come up with problems. He comes up with solutions. So I was like, you know, We'll, we'll groom him, we'll, we'll train him, we'll train him. Time was ticking. Um, we didn't have a lot of time to get ready for that tour. I had no infantry, real infantry experience. I'm going straight off training, into training at a battalion level and then deploying for 11 months combat operations. I didn't know it was 11 months at the time, but it would later be 11 months, which is another story altogether. But the crux of it was the first contact came and as, as the Russian roulette game plays, um, he was the section commander that I had on the ground and we were in our first fight and he froze. And and I ended up having to do the one thing I hate doing, which was go back down and micromanage, you know, guns and individual soldiers. And basically I had to be a section commander. And that was a massive failing on my end. And if you chase the reason why that happened, it was a complete lack of moral courage and fortitude to have hard conversations early. And I think that tour demonstrated the repercussions of not dealing with things when they're at a small level 
and how it magnifies over time at the gritty end, you know, at the point of the spear. And there was, you know, that's one example, but there were like 10 examples of things that I'll be like, I'll do later. Uh, you know, that little thing doesn't matter. That little thing doesn't matter. And that lesson, the lessons that taught from that tour were hard hitting because every time I did that, I got my ass kicked, not by my chain of command, but by life. Like, you know, <laughs> life had a funny way of coming back with a vicious right hook. You're talking about things I'll get to later from a leadership perspective. Didn't do it, lost influence. You know, slips in, you know, individual relationships with other leaders. You know, one comment here. Well, that costs you three months worth of shit work because you, you should have shut up and you, you should have left ego and pride at the door. And I think that combat tour just was, a, as you use the term, crucible. It was a mechanism to pressure test ideas and methods and what worked and what didn't, if nothing else, and um, the costs were pretty high. Yeah. We are challenged in those environments and we're actually one moment away from chaos. And so if we aren't taking care of the little things that can be done today, then, then they're going to line up at one point in the future. And that's operations, isn't it? Like the one moment away from chaos and then chaos. Like I think the, that's what categorises ground force operations in in combat is is chaos, but it's controlled chaos. It's as much control yeah. <laughs> of chaos as you can get. And, you know, and then being comfortable being uncomfortable when it becomes uncontrolled, you know. And I think the uh, slightly different experience than Dave, the same position, both platoon commanders out on the ground, the, the threat profile had changed by the time I deployed, and you'd know, Martin, from your time over there, the Taliban had moved towards looking at defected Afghan National Army people. So the insider threat uh, was was a lot higher. Um, one of my good mates, his platoon in 2011 had an Afghan officer killed three of his guys on a parade ground. I took over. We took over that patrol base. Uh, I think I was a lot luckier and our teams were a lot luckier because I had Dave's experience and, and those guys from MTF2 and I had the MTF3 guys. I, we never say enough about the professionalism that the tour AR guys showed in their handover with us. Post that incident, you know, you can only imagine. And, you know, it's, it's probably worth having a chat with those guys. But I had a friend of mine who was in the 1st Battalion when I was there. He was actually one of my mentors. He was a corporal when I was a soldier. He was a corporal in uh, MTF3 in the patrol base. And he'd actually been shot by that Afghan National Army guy and had come back, back out of Germany, to go back into a mentor role. He's mentoring Afghan National Army soldiers after one of their officers who killed three of his mates. And it's just like, well, John, what's your excuse? Like, build relationships and do that. Represent the guys as, as well as you can because that's what's going to keep you guys alive now. Our kinetic picture or our threat picture wasn't external. It was internal. So your, your ability to build relationships, manage perceived pressure as well. So when we first found out about the green on blue threat, the automatic response was to go, Everyone in the Afghan National Army are, uh, are going to have try and have a crack at you when you when they get the chance. That wasn't the case. So when we got the handover, they were like, "No, no, I'm telling you right now." And this is coming from people that were shot. It's like they're not all bad, all right. And our job over here is to mentor them so that they can take the fight to the Taliban because we're not going to be here forever. And then when you know my mobile mentoring was up north in a in a patrol base a lot further north against the Wild West up there, but. You know, again, it was that building relationships. You know, you get to a point where you're like, well, I need to let these guys know that I've got their back. This is what's happened, but I've got your back. 
we'll look after you, we'll go out, you know, we'll fight, we'll do all that, but I've got your back. However, the protection of my team comes first. So if you do something along these lines, I will respond with an extreme amount of violence. But now that we've got that trust with insurance relationship, let's go work together. When I handed over to the guys coming in um, from 3RER, about a month later, the platoon commander that I'd handed over to, his team was engaged by an Afghan national, an Afghan national army soldier at that at the, the northern patrol base. So I was like, what I learnt about operations from these guys, from those the, the guys in Tourer, and then post my trip was like the importance of building relationships, but also luck. Like luck has a say in this. I'm, I'm like I was blown blown away about that that six and a half month period, but also the manner in which our elements built relationships was, I think, you know, that's what we learned from the Toro guys and that's where we put a significant amount of our resources and influence, which is just building relationships. I mean, my um, uh, after a, a, a patrol that, of course, I went down towards the end, they'd lost three. I was in I was in a reserve force for that one because I'd just come back from the north. The rest of the call sign had gone out on a, on a three-day patrol and we lost we lost a few Afghan National Army guys on, on that patrol. My OC or my boss was actually asked to come into their mosque and sit in the seats reserved for family and preside over those over those funerals. So it's like the investment in relationships for us paid paid dividends. Yeah. And and of course there's a lesson there for the corporate world, isn't there? Absolutely. I, I, one of the things I you know, I think is a, a, an important theme, if not you know, in today's world with today's context is Jono mentioned at the start when he was introducing how we first met. Well, you know, we ended up at the back of a bar, you know, in the wee hours of a morning, drunk as skunks, about to go toe-to-toe. And now you're looking at two people who are fiercely loyal of each other and are running, you know, businesses together and enterprise together and investments together and all these sorts of things. What you're dealing with now is not the situation you're going to be dealing with in the future. Right? That, that's point one. Point two is your choices will lead you on one trajectory or another trajectory or another trajectory. It's almost an infinite amount of trajectories you can send. The accumulation of those choices will have impacts. You know, I think a lot of people feel disempowered in the world at the moment, in themselves, and they feel like the world is happening to them and they've lost control of the fact that they have choices. Well, We've got two guys here that were willing to rip each other's heads off who are best mates now and have been for nearly 17 years who are you know, fiercely loyal at a new level that most people never get in their lives. Well, what does that mean for you as a leader now? Is, it, is your enemy going to be your enemy in a week's time, a year's time? Can you improve a relationship? Are you going to be too stubborn that you can't represent people in forums where they can't represent themselves? You know, like Jono had to bite his ego and his pride there in order to protect his soldiers. I need to build a relationship with someone who right now I could not give a damn about and, frankly, I would probably want to shoot. So how do I bite my ego to have that effect to save 30 other people? And I think if we can put get yourself out of the scenario and go, what do I need to be in this equation and what choices do I need to make to send us on better trajectories – to help other people, um, suddenly the whole dynamic of leadership takes a turn and, and suddenly you're like, I need to not play the victim card here. I need to pay 
the, the choices and empowerment card in order to represent people where they can't represent themselves. That's what I get from that. And I think it's important now more than ever. It's such an important discussion about what are your choices, who are you representing, and how well are you doing it? You've got a strong partnership together and, as you said, forged over those many years um, in the bar as well as sort of now in business. But what are the two or three things that actually really make your partnership work? I think what well, we know each other like really well. Like, there's not a lot of secrets between between Dave and I, but I think the the thing that holds it together, apart from that understanding and the fact that with a couple of choices we could probably tear each other's lives apart if we really wanted, we violently protect each other's reputations. Like, we are so committed to that protection to the point where Dave and I had a fight not too not too long ago, and. The fight when you broke it down. The only one in seventeen years, by the way. Apart from that initial, <laughs> one, we were we were fighting, and like when we stopped, we're like, mate, we've got to take twenty minutes and and have this chat again. Was we're actually trying to protect each other. So I had his, his best interests, and he had mine, and I was like, <laughs> you need to start focusing on yourself, like look after yourself. And it was back and forth, yeah. and we were getting so frustrated, but yeah. we weren't listening very well at the time. And I think it's that it's that protection that that forges that relationship. Like, and I, I use the word violently protective because it actually promotes a, a physical response in you. So I mean, his family, I know his family so well. I know all the circumstances, his finances, like everything. I know we know each other so well that you know we when we say we protect each other's reputations, we protect each other like we protect ourselves. We also do that in forums where no one's watching. I know exactly what Dave's going to say when he's going to say it in those rooms that I'm not in, and there's power in that. Like there's strength in that and, you know, people people are willing that they follow the, the group think or they're influenced adversely in those rooms where those other people who they're responsible for, and let's be honest, like I'm responsible for you and you're responsible for me. In those rooms, people are influenced because they don't understand the purpose, they don't understand the values. You know, they're shaped by this, this, this idea of immediacy, that right now. Right now I've got to protect my ego in this boardroom so I've got to throw someone under the bus. Wrong. Because if you throw that person under the bus, what's everyone in that boardroom thinking you're doing when you're not in the boardroom? Throwing all those board members under the bus. So <laughs> as a minimum, there's no assurance you're not, which is may as well be the same thing. From my perspective, the, the strength behind the relationship is also the fact that it's not all rainbows and lollipops. You know, it's not it's the you know, it's not this put on a pedestal, it's gritty, it's grimy, it's honest. It's scary, you know. It's scary in the sense that we talk about the dark and we talk about the light and I'm not talking, you know, I'm talking metaphorically here. We we don't run from the scary things. Mm. It's like whenever there's a scary thing looming that threatens the, the you know, the, the relationship or it threatens one of us, we don't try and be nice about it. In that regard, nice is our worst enemy. So we've gotten to a point where we can just say the thing. And sometimes the thing is what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And so those discussions, and that never happens in front of people. That's always behind closed doors. But it's a discussion like, Jono, don't do that because if you do that, you're going to look like a dickhead. And you're going to look like a dickhead because this group here, this group here will interpret that message in this way. And I know that's not the effect you're after. Let's go to the whiteboard and we'll try and figure out a better way to bring each of the groups in and try and, and nest something in. But 
not, uh, you know, it's like stopping something before, bad before it happens is, has given us a new level of momentum because we're both trying to check each other and, and quality check each other before things are going out. And um, I think that's a very powerful rep- reputation protector for not you and me individually, but collectively. We also understand that the other person has the best interests of the other person at heart. Like we've been in conversations where I've been talking in a certain way and then Dave's gone, well, actually, John, I categorically disagree with that because of this, in public, in front of a lot of people. And most people would go, that wanker, how dare you cut cut my legs out in front of me, in front of everyone? No, not at all. It means he's seen something that I've been completely oblivious to and has chosen to correct it then and there. And I'm like, okay, I need to listen now. And then I'll pick up on the nuance in what Dave's saying and be like, all right, cool, that's what I missed. That's the atmospheric change that happened in the room that I didn't see while I was talking or something And it like was that. to protect Jono, who might, might not have been representing the, all the amount of work and effort that he's mm. actually done. It's like, stop, I actually disagree. You actually have done a lot mm. and these things need to be, you know, identified and, mm. you know, refined and all those sorts of things. But I think over and more and more, the more we go down this journey, the more we realise how damaging ego and pride is. Yeah. When it becomes about you, then you become your own echo chamber. And the moment that happens, that little voice inside your head eats you alive and sends you in pretty bad trajectories. I've not seen many examples where that's been disproved. I don't see a, a viable alternative other than, you know, an uncomfortable adherence to truth and the willingness to throw your ego under the bus. <laughs> something like that. It's like this, it's something along those lines. Quote. Yeah. Throw your ego under the bus. <laughs> yeah, if you have to throw something, throw your ego. And if you can't find it, get something to show you where it is. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Very good. So look, for business leaders out there right now, what's the, what's what might be one piece of advice you would give them right now in the context of what we've been living through in the pandemic and the complex world that we are in, in the business world? What would be one piece of advice? I think one of the one of the big things in we're seeing a pendulum shift. In, in society as a whole and I think leaders need to start looking at it in a lot more detail is not it's 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 an interesting one to articulate but where everyone's looking for safety leaders need to be growing their people's strength all right and I'll go I'll go quickly into like a almost a methodology side and then I'll come back I don't like going to methodology but it's important where leaders have sought to over control volatility uncertainty complexity and ambiguity They've forgotten that the biggest marker or the biggest ability to mitigate those things is to build resilience and strength in your people. We're at a point where we push safety policy, procedure, and mechanisms and control mechanisms so far down that they're only relevant in a certain situation. As soon as you take those people out of that situation, your safety precautions and mechanisms and policies are almost irrelevant. Whereas if you build the strength of people, and you empower them to make decisions, they take that from situation to situation. And what we're not seeing a lot of is that development of strength in people. And it's enabling like a, a victim mentality. It's, a, it's enabling an over-reliance on uh, or it's, it's enabling micromanagement, right, which is mm-hmm. slowing organisations down because every time something happens, people have to look up and they've got to check. They've got to check the red tape. They've got to check, 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 check because they're not empowered or they don't feel strong enough 
to make decisions and move. I guess from my end, after having done a lot of coaching with a lot of individual business owners, I'd like to expectation manage and I'd say it's not meant to be easy. I don't know whoever told anyone any of this stuff was easy. If they did, they were absolutely lying. Like there's no two ways about it. It's this this whole leadership thing, you know, entrepreneurship, whatever you want to call it, if you are taking a voluntary jump into chaos in order to create a new state, it's not meant to be easy. It's meant to be really hard. Mm. And the reason why it's so valuable is because it's hard. Because if it was easy, everyone would be doing it, right? So when you're in the hard thing, know that you voluntarily jumped into that hard thing and that's exactly where you planned to be. So now that you're in the hard thing, you've got to finish the hard thing so that later on you can say, I did a hard thing. You know, you can't say I did a hard thing and achieved amazing things unless you did those things. And so when you're in it, reframe, reconsider how you the choices that got you to this point and the amount of amazing opportunities in the choices to get you out of this point. You're in the storm. How do you get out of the storm? I, I think that's an important message because some people, they, 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 you know, they don't have that blessing of being able to work with their best mate. They, they literally are in a grind and they're just, you know, one day's just worse than the next for the foreseeable future. And it's really hard to go, what can I do? What, what is this? And what 1% improvements can I start making? And how much power do I really have? I, I think that's an important message now more than ever is you chose to be here and you wouldn't. And if you got given, if someone came with some magic wand and said, I could make all your problems go away and your life will be incredibly easy and one day will be the, a clone of the next, no sane person would take that. That sounds like another form of, you know, fluffy hell. Frankly, you would probably take the, the path of, no, I want to do deal with some adversity. I want hardship. I want to become a stronger person. So now that you're in that, go do it. Yeah. And get comfortable being uncomfortable because that's leadership, right? It's not meant to be comfortable. Yeah. It occurs to me, I mean, you are, as a partnership, um, the resources and support for each other. What have been the external support and resources that have helped you get to where you are today? Oh, family's an obvious oh, yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. Has been, it has been the rock behind 8th Mile. I mean, we started from pretty humble beginnings. Our, our start three years ago was <laughs> just like we had some shitty business cards and an email that occasionally worked, and that was about it. And um, so to, what, we, what we didn't have was, and, and it was a choice, was we didn't go down that path of, you know, sourcing capital and sourcing equity and whatnot we actually went down the path of just starting from scratch and seeing the utility of our product, which is, you know, you know, our teachings and our, you know, and our products and all that sort of stuff. It was family that bought us time. You know, when you talk about time, cost, quality, well, we traded time and our family paid that price because we were pulling big days and weird hours and we've got international clients. I'm like, get up at 3am, you're going to 2am, like just whatever, just trying to make it work and make a buck to try and reinvest back in the business, well, the people that absorbed that friction behind the scenes was our family. Um, now things have grown and we've got people who do jobs as opposed to me doing website, <laughs> accounting, you doing like every other goddamn thing. It's like now we have people that do things, so that helps. But in the first instance, that was that burden was held by our families. 
Yeah. Family supporting you is not dissimilar to the military service either, is it? No, not at all. And not at all. I think the, the, the extension of the military service part is the importance of a robust and supportive network. Right? So we have a network, a really strong network of supportive people. Like the, the favour economy is, is strong. We've done a lot of favours and those sort of things. And, you know, karma, you know, it comes back in, in weird and wonderful ways. We've had some amazing mentors and coaches in, in this three-year journey, not dissimilar to the military where you get some amazing leaders that you look at and you're like, yeah, I want a lot of that. We've also got a lot of examples. You're like, I want none of that. None of it. Like not one little bit of that. And so, you know, you, you learn and you, you test and adjust. Um, one, of the, one of the leaders, the one that pretty much was our, our first jump out of the military into a not-for-profit sense, I still see her as one of the best examples of leadership in a corporate context I've, I've ever seen. And to tell you the truth, if she was in the military, she'd be a formidable force. Yeah, and, kill you know, we learned so much, I think, that we needed in, the, in that first instance about empathy and you know, actual rapport. Inf- yeah, and influence based on competence and relevance over position. And, you know, those things were able to, to temper some of our military habits, I suppose, where, you know, you get into a situation and things going all over the place. You're like, okay, cool. I need to go and fix it. You know, where she would be the one that would say, hey, you know, just take a pause, see how it plays out a little bit. You know, start understanding the relationships. I think a lot of the work mm. that we learned to do outside of the boardroom. So going around to senior stakeholders, building rapport, pretty much getting the decision made before you go into the boardroom, um, we learned from her. You know, that influence piece based on competence and relevance, <laughs> she was just next level. Yeah, yeah, I 100% yep. agree. The, 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 John, I mentioned about I want none of that. Um, <laughs> It took. It was actually about three months in before we came up with that mantra of good people helping good people. Now that's a, a nice, fluffy way of saying. You know, that's like the the positive way of having a, a mantra and a, a you know a catchphrase. But the other side of that, the other, if you flip the coin, is we're not bad people and we don't help bad people. That's that's if you if you find the antonym, it's this switch of it. There are bad people out there. There are some really shit humans, Martin. Like, there are really bad people. <laughs> um, and some people are right down the far end of the spectrum of bad. Some are kind of like in the grey area and you see shots of bad character and for short periods of time and then they kind of self-correct and then there are good people. When we built this good people helping good people, we knew we were losing a huge amount of clientele. <laughs> so, so um, but, but the quality of the clientele that we've had has been what's grown our brand because we've taken some, you know, revenue hits because we're like, we're actually not going to work with that company. And then when they go, why aren't you going to work with us? And we're like, we don't align on a values level with you. We actually think what you're doing is bad. You know, that's a hard conversation to have when you're you're trying to make a dollar. Yeah. But what it actually has done is created a sense of um, exclusivity with the brand because other companies are like, no, 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 we want to attach ourselves to that brand and, we, you know, there's that level of reciprocity. Yeah, but it's important. The good people helping good people means we don't help bad people. <laughs> it's important to know. It's good to be in a place where those values alignment is is because it, it's a sweet place to be, isn't it? Yeah, it's paid for though. Geez, yeah, there's a cost in that. There is a cost, and that's that. That's that point about short term sacrifice for a long term gain. And like I like I said a little bit earlier, with the the tendency of today's environment for immediacy, like and all people can 
can take that pause and look long term. But you know, we've we've had to set the conditions for that. You know, it's not just like one day you flick a switch and you go, well, I'm just going to look long term now. You know, take COVID for example. There were people that are in just this grind, like they're living day to day, like hour to hour. And we obviously come from a background like yourself where you manage risks. So where you can, you, you mitigate those risks early. So you build a stable platform. When COVID hit, Dave and I had to switch strategy. So I went into defensive mode. So all the resources and assets and everything that we had, I consolidate. And then Dave went offensive. He went pretty much like throwing revenue over your shoulder so I could like catch it, pull it, hold on to it. I didn't know what was going on, Martin. I literally was running... <laughs> Like a a missile just throwing stuff over my shoulders going, I hope you've got a bucket, mate, because I don't know what's going on back there. But like we we had to, and we we understand, and we're not approaching this from any moral hope. We understand some some people don't have that opportunity. They've had to live day to day. We are long-term planners by by nature. That's just what we do. I mean, you'd be exactly the same. But, you know, that we've been able to do that because we've set the conditions to do that. We've been able to be a bit more exclusive about our clients and good people because we've set the conditions for that. We've built a strong, engaged network. We've built a strong client base. We've turned down contracts. Turned down big contracts. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you have to. You have to sacrifice in the short term. It's like raising kids. Sometimes it's not comfortable and all you want to do is turn around and, you know, why aren't you going to be like, no, no, I'm just going to take a time out here because I'm trying to grow a good human being that needs a solid example. So yelling at him is not going to be conducive to his long-term confidence. So it's that purpose. It's a long-term vision. And I think, again, in, a, in an environment based on immediacy, it's hard for people to extract themselves, you know, from the five-meter targets or not being able to see the forest through the trees. I'll throw a hundred meth- <laughs> metaphoric things in here. But, you know, they can't separate to have that choice, but you have to buy yourself that time. As much as you Somehow, can. Like even if it's five minutes of planning versus, you know, instinctive action, like that five minutes pays dividends months down the track. Well, look, we could. I felt like we just hit the tip of the iceberg here in terms of the conversation around leadership and your lessons. It's been an absolute pleasure. We are up to the rapid fire questions. So the way this works is, uh, well, I'm going to give you a phrase and I'm going to ask you to fill in the blank. And with both of you on the call, let's, uh, let's get both of you to do that. So the first question, uh, five questions. The first question, leadership is blank. Influence. Context. What's your go-to book on leadership? 12 Rules for Life. And so the next question, I wish I had known blank earlier in my career. Jono? I'd just like to say more. I wish I'd known more <laughs> earlier in the I wish I'd known more about people, more about myself, more about process, more about like more. I wish I'd known more, but that's life. I'd say strength in failure. It's okay to fail, just learn from it. You get a call from a team member, a crisis has just erupted in your company. What are your first words to that person? Let's go grab lunch. Let's take a breath. And last one, is there a go-to quote on leadership that's been influential on your career? I think I, I always go back to Sun Tzu's, know yourself, know your enemy, and you need not fear a result of 100 battles, or the Viktor Frankl stimulus and response. The stimulus and response quote for me, you know, when medically separated from the army, it was, it was key because it helped me break down imposter syndrome, helped me take that space when I needed to before reacting. So those, those two, Sun Tzu and stimulus and response. So leadership is not about you. 
Right. Dave Neal 2019. <laughs> <laughs> I think many of us have had that quote for ourselves for sure. Dave and John Oates, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Frontline to Boardroom. We're going to put in the show notes uh, where people can find you at the 8th Mile Consulting. I just admire the job you're doing and uh, good on you for the way you're sticking to your values and, and applying those lessons learned along the way. I look forward to seeing your success going forward and I reckon sort of somewhere down the future it would be great to have you back and, and hear what else you've learned because, I, as I said, I reckon we'll just tip of the iceberg here in our conversation. Hey, Martin, can I just, you know, just take a quick minute and say thank you for bringing Dave and I on. Since I first saw you speak up on a, in a public forum, I was like, this guy's got it. I don't know if, any, if anyone else was on the podcast or that has seen you speak in public, but it was one of the one of the best speeches or one of the best engagements I think I've I've sat there and listened to. You know everything from surfing a battleship to you know your lessons on leadership and you know, analysis itself. I think was was really important. So the fact that you would ask Dave and I to, to be on your podcast, we take that we don't take that lightly, mate. And we're we're honoured to be here. And you've got us in your corner as as you move forward. Whatever we can do to support you, mate. We. We, we love what you're doing and we respect you, you greatly. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, mate. Cheers, man. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.